0: What do you do at work today, honey? I can't talk about it. <laughs> Secret dinosaur stuff. <laughs> Here's my ending. Here. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Right. Welcome to episode 83 of the Touchboard Zoology podcast uh i'm the diatlov pass incident and i podcast
0: with the american diatlov pass incident have you read about that one darren uh, mm. um <gasps> it's true there is one look it up
1: where did it happen then
0: i forget um, okay. somewhere <laughs> in the rocky mountains it's, oh, right. it's quite different it's not the same sort of thing but it's yeah is it in the missing
1: 411 stories
0: uh, I don't know because I've never read it we've, um,
1: we've, we've at least touched on the missing 411 before uh, so that's a tangent so <laughs> now I've been going around telling people on other podcasts
0: that they Tet wouldn't Z- be in that be- oh yeah no they might be because they did actually find some of those people sorry I was going to say aren't they all missing but no okay the section of
1: the show called uh, what's new at Tetsu I've been telling other people that the Bodd's Aussie podcast is no more; that it's defunct and that we've had to abandon it. And yet here we are. That's not true, is it? I you always
0: say we're going to do another episode. We're going to do another episode soon.
1: I thought I thought that you know the time really has come to hang up our podcasting shoes. And um, <laughs> so just... and why is that? Why 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 have I told people that we can't do it? That it's not a thing anymore? I don't know.
0: We went from weekly to like. Every two weeks to maybe monthly to six months to a yearly podcast. It's a yearly podcast.
1: There's a reason for it. You got a job. Well, (laughs) there's there's a couple of reasons for it. One is who needs needs another podcast where a bunch of guys sit around just jabbering about stuff. Who needs that? Don't need that. (laughs) And the other thing is incompatible scheduling. So... I work all day and I can't get out of it. I've got busy, busy stuff. You were in bed all day and you can only podcast in the evening. And See, I can't. you just went wrong
0: there, didn't you? You just went wrong. So, no, that's the other way round. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, incompatible schedules. Utterly incompatible. Yeah. Yes. I you can't, can't really
0: podcast after seven. That's for sure.
1: And I can only podcast after seven. <laughs> so, um. Anyway, whatever, we're here now. So uh I feel that I feel there's like there's a few there's a few episodes left in us yet. We never have even got to a hundred. You know, these other stupid podcasts I listen to are on like episode 283 and whatnot. Um so you got COVID? Nope. No. Luckily.
0: Oh. Yeah. Huh. Well, Me I am, I'm triple VAT, so
1: so am I. I've got my yeah. third booster probably this week or week before I can't remember now actually Mm. but I did some filming with people on Thursday Mm. and then of course I got that wait a minute what day is it today Wednesday so it was last Thursday some filming last Thursday and then got a phone call on Friday saying yeah everyone in the team okay okay. Uh, so I've taken a bunch of lateral flow tests and so far all the tests all the results are negative um So I'll take a couple more before Christmas. We're recording just before Christmas, 23rd today of December, the year 2021, because I'm seeing my parents and Hmm. uh, I don't want to give them COVID because they're late in life. Are they boosted up? I haven't spoken to them for so long, but I don't know, but they probably are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't see my parents very regularly. Um yeah so okay there you go um i don't i mean many of our listeners are not in the uk many are in the uk but to those of you outside of the uk the it may you may not know but the we have the most inept corrupt self-serving selfish government probably ever in history and (laughs) no hyperbole
0: no (laughs) hyperbole
1: well okay at least since victorian times (laughs) And uh, at least since 1900, Victoria died in 1901.
0: And oh, you mean in this country? That's what I said. Yeah, sorry, I mean... No, in you, this... yeah, you said in this country we have, which is ambiguous, because it could mean you meant that this country... Oh, has ever in history. Ever in history of anywhere. Okay, ever.
1: no, no. The, the, most, the most corrupt, self-serving, um, uh, yeah, sort of bunch of political rulers in British history... Uh, since Henry VIII (laughs) and um, um, basically every single decision that's been made about uh, you know public health and policy has been like bad like right from the start so from the very first the very first prime minister's um, kind of official announcement to the public the very first one Mr Johnson said this is how bad it is and this is how bad it's going to get. And then literally five minutes into the meeting. So as a result, I'm releasing. I'm like, he he didn't. So the first lockdown, in the first lockdown, he's immediately talking about. But don't worry, because next week we'll be able to not do, you'll be able to, oh. So right, I can't. I can't like explain it exactly. I don't remember the details, but it's right away. The whole idea is, but don't worry, we can. Sorry about the dog. We've got people in the house fixing a window, so Teddy, the little terrier, is barking his merry little face off today. And um, and yeah, cut. And you know, like we get these things on TV all the time where Johnson talks about uh, where you should be triple jabs and real mask, but um. But he doesn't say anything about, like... So, apparently, kids are immune to COVID and can't spread it and stuff. So, there's never any mention of school. Schools and everything to do with children is just meant to carry on as normal. Um, there's been no proper sh- proper um, shutdown of, like, you know, rules on public transport and travelling in and out of the country. We immediately allowed people to, you know, come in from countries where they knew they had, you know, the new Omicron variant and stuff like that. And the government themselves. So this has been all over the British press. But again, might not be obvious if you're outside the UK, the actual people themselves, Mr. Johnson and his little cabal of buddies, have been having have been living it up like with these parties and traveling around the country there 's a photo taken last week of Boris Johnson actually in a train carriage talking to someone without a mask on so it 's like they are have been demonstrated to be flouting like not just the rules but also just general best practice at every turn and i 'm just like even if you're even if you 're slightly skeptical or even outright skeptical about any of this stuff what how do you want to see your, you know, what sort of message do you want to send to the public? Basically, they're sending a message that it doesn't matter. Nobody cares. Carry on, carry on. It doesn't matter. Just and, and as a consequence, I just don't feel that we're ever going to get out of this. It's just never going to go away.
0: Can I, can I, my favourite story was, of course, that what, what did they do when they find out this is very early on? Oh, there's a pandemic. There's a new disease. What, what should we have? A, a long cabinet meeting in a very small room where they all gave each other COVID. <laughs> so we had we had the health minister and and Boris Johnson out with COVID at the same time. I mean, beautiful competence there. But I am actually going to push back on a little of this stuff because I think they've done everything – well, yeah, they're basically incompetent because they have no plan, right? It's just a whole bunch of crap that they do in the moment that the pressure's on them from the right wing of their party and the public, and they just don't know what they're doing, Right. And so any measures they take are generally two weeks too late. And, you know, I just don't think they've got any plan. However, what is the plan? Because we're not going to eradicate COVID. It's not going to happen. So are we just going to live with this semi-lockdown state forever? Is that the plan? Because I think the what they're saying is, okay, we've got the vaccines now. So many people are vaccinated what how are we meant to live life. And I think this is a discussion that we can't just say public health experts just say, because yeah, okay, to control the disease, we do what they say. But we don't we didn't live in a lockdown beforehand from other infectious diseases. We didn't live in lockdowns in the 30s where you get tuberculosis, for example. Right? People are willing to live with deadly diseases. So I don't know. I, I feel like this is just not something that you can just say, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. a bunch of scientists have expertise on this and this is how you control the disease. Yeah, it kind of is, maybe. Not that, you know, public health experts actually have a tremendous tr- record on this, but it's better than anyone else, I guess. But it's not perfect. But that's not really the question. Yeah, that okay yeah that probably would control the disease but is it okay to live in a society where there's these restrictions and mandates of sorts of things because there's a deadly disease and that's a political question yep it's not it's not a public health question
1: well we're not experts on this stuff and i would expect a bunch of experts to sit down and you know come up with best practice and whatnot and you'll notice well you might but we are
0: experts darren because (laughs) sorry i don't mean we're experts is in training, but look, no one's an expert on this. What is the trade-off? What is the risk profile you're willing to take? Mm, well, so for me for me, actually, I'm triple vaxed, it's probably as good as it's going to get. I am not personally um I personally don't see the point in the restrictions for me anymore, right? yeah yep, yep. so I can say for me, I'm willing to accept the risk. It is a risk, I agree, but it's a, it's one I'm willing to accept. Well, so, I think, speaking of someone that is actually in the highest risk group so yes. i don't know i just think that this is mm, the discussion around this from scientific circles is a bit
1: well i think there's there's risks that you shouldn't take so like for example you shouldn't like have groups of people packed into you know small rooms with um but closed why? windows but
0: because you might get it yeah yeah, well... but I did I'm... that before the pandemic. People did it in the 30s, people did it in the 20s, people did it in the 1890s. Eight... No, eight... not... no, it, no, it is. Not it's, not it people... not a... it's not a good argument. It tells you what It's not a good argument. Okay, how, why is it not a good argument?
1: Well, because saying that, oh, that's the way it worked in the past doesn't mean that it was best practice, because it wasn't best practice. It was, it was stupid so, but practice. But what's
0: best practice?
1: Not doing something that puts you and other people at unnecessary risk.
0: But l- life is an unnecessary risk, Darren. <laughs> so whether you're... Um, so... I, I, this is what the point I'm making. The risk profile is what you're willing to live with, right? Lots of people do things you don't strictly need to do that put, things, put them at risk all the time. It's, it's, the question is not what's best practice because, yeah, we can, we can live in a way that makes it really, really difficult to spread infectious diseases, but lots and lots and lots of people are saying they don't want to live that way. And my point about the past is that people in the past made these decisions too. They said, no, we don't want to live that way. We are willing to accept these risks. So we know humans are willing to accept these risks. Broadly, society is willing to accept the risks. Now, COVID, I'm not saying this is a simple question because COVID is relatively dangerous, very infectious. Um, But with vaccines and... The no end in sight stuff, which is that is going on, because yep. we're not going to. No one's talking about eradicating COVID at this stage. I I, I don't know. I, I I don't think it's as simple as as like we should just trust what public health experts say about spreading it. And sorry that we should just say we should do what they say because their job is to tell us what the best way to control the disease is. Their job is not to tell us what risk profiles we should take in our own lives about how willing willing to live <laughs> that 's my point it 's a political well, question at this stage, which is up to like the the really frustrating and annoying arguments that go on in like political systems right just, everyone just has to argue about it a
1: lot i don't I don't have a point because my point is that I don't know what best practice, what the best thing the wisest thing to do is. My point in what I said about our government early on is that when there were parts when there were times in the discussion where it looked like things could be let's say minimized or not made as bad as they are, they could have sent a message to curtail the spread of variants and they did the opposite so having members of the, of the literally of the group that are in charge finding out that they're you know literally traveling around and you know meeting up without masks and all that that sort
0: of stuff well might... they never really believed in any of the restrictions anyway they just didn't because of political pressure i guess that's my well, my take on it
1: well when you're talking about i mean so like I don't know what the best practice would be given that you're talking about literally, you know, obviously, you know, even in a small country like the UK, you're talking about literally tens of millions of people. So influencing how they have done the thing, you know, how, how what you tell people to do or what you advise <laughs> them to do. I don't know because you get, you know, not just pockets of resistance, but backlashes as, as, as we, as we have uh, at the moment. But I looked at other countries that seem to have done a much better job in curtailing, spread and in having you know festering hot spots where like infection rates really high and death rates really high and hospitals and the nhs are really struggling i i do think that our government has you know like I say made bad decisions at every turn i kind of think in a way that that's a different that's a different discussion from what you were just highlighting which is like you say you know we can't live in eternal lockdown that's that's not going to work and, that, and i also think and I have my own children in mind here because Emma in particular is not doing well under uh, what's happened um I think it's you know clearly got a serious long-term social and mental impact on uh, you know a substantial yeah. number of people particularly young people
0: so, it's particularly um, worrying I mean young people the impact will probably be um so you know well teenagers and older children the impact probably temporary right um that the actual restrictions the schooling and stuff gets disrupted and things but mo- most of them will probably spring back okay what is more worrying is about what happens to um really young children who are socialized in this environment um yeah so, toddlers and things being told you shouldn't you know, run up to relatives and hug them and things exactly. like that. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And there's young people. And whether that's that
0: got psychological impacts, we don't understand. Well, later some
1: yeah, there must be some kids that have grown up and so far they've seen, not grown up, you know, they've spent the first year of their lives and they've seen two people.
0: Or, <laughs> well, there's yeah. a small number of case, such cases, but they, they will exist. Yeah. yeah. So they oh, were. well, then it's just weird. You know, there's a lot of the times where you're just told, oh, no, 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 no don't, don't 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 go up to grandma. You know, don't do that yeah um and that sort of stuff is weird for learning trust and things like that that young kids need to ideally learn you know
1: yeah i also and so to to bring this around to something more relevant to like the point of this podcast because of course everyone can talk about covid and their own experiences uh, at great length at the moment um i've as a as a, like, a freelancer writer researcher um at this point in my life I've been in a very privileged position in the you know my life basically involves sitting at a desk working on a computer and I haven't really I've missed out on all social events and all field trips and all kinds of stuff like that because you know who who hasn't so many of us have but in terms of my like ability to survive financially and whatnot I haven't been badly affected and um, and in fact I've probably even done better during the covidian era because um there's been more demand for the sort of stuff that people like me you know produce I mean it might be the same for you as well but um um I, I do think that that I'm aware of the fact that that makes me have a less aggressive like less negative stance towards uh you know um
0: restrictions strict restrictions, yeah um, yeah um, many Yeah, because if your would. livelihood depends on working in a restaurant, for example, then yeah. obviously you're going to feel like yeah so yeah,
1: and to be yeah. clear, it has in the past, I have been like you know a re- worker in yeah. retail and a f- um an office temp, you know I would have been doomed at that time, but now that I'm able to yeah, yeah sit here and write all day, it's been ah, brilliant, excellent, no one's going out, right <laughs> can write get, get more <laughs> stuff i've had I've had more work than I can actually keep up with. Um, i've had to turn down loads of stuff which uh incidentally i give to i passed the way of various junior colleagues and stuff who are you know trying to make their own way in uh, the world of freelancing and science writing and whatnot but um what about you have you you've been super productive then during covid right loads of extra work and i have produced (laughs) quite a lot yes
0: Ah! (laughs) i was expecting a hilarious (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I haven't had a peak of demand or anything like that. I mean, how do you measure demand for me? But yeah, um, I haven't had a peak in earnings. Um, but yeah, it's it's been essentially nothing. Like, just no difference. Um, I... yeah, Well, it's affected me a little bit because Jenny's home all day now. Every day. Whereas she didn't used to be. So, that's good
1: right you spend more time with your wife
0: yeah but i'm one of these people that needs like leave me alone for hours i've got to get in the zone otherwise it's like oh, i get distracted i don't do things properly um yeah so maybe a bit of a hit there maybe i don't think so
1: you got your um, own office though haven't you your own office space it's not properly shut off from the rest of the house is it no so here in here in the tetsu office I am. Yeah. I am shut away. I've got a whole wing of the house here. Yeah, you've and... got a whole
0: wing. See, I've just got a like a little alcove at the front of the house. Mm. Um, so, as long as, yeah. so
1: long as that door shut. So long as that door yeah. shut. Um... I
0: can shut the doors to my study, but it's they're pretty thin. You can sort of hear everything, and I I like to be able to get up and move around a bit more than my tiny study allows. Um, uh... Yeah, but yeah, I mean the effect on people like us is in some ways minimal, obviously. But I tell you, I do miss the, the events, um, which um, came up once every few months that we'd all, you know, I'd see you maybe, yeah, once every few months. Um, Mm. And just thinking about things like, you know, uh, Mm. people I'd see like Mark Whitten once every six months or so. Haven't seen him for what, two years? maybe more oh, yeah. yeah and that sort of thing so I miss that I miss the in-person um occasional things that we used to do professionally which I think was was good and I I find myself going a little bit getting a bit weary you mm. know it feels like everything's the same always yeah I've, not I've, punctuated I've, by anything
1: yeah I haven't traveled I haven't flown anywhere over the whole period i haven't done any of the whale watching trips that i was getting in the habit of doing mm. haven't been to any conferences in person mm. so loads of conferences i'm really hoping that things will start to open up this year because there's a conference like there's one in oregon that I'm, i've been invited to speak at and there's a bunch in the uk that are to do that are book fairs and um, things to do with to do with dinopedia um and yeah, like Christmas parties, I haven't been to any Christmas parties, I haven't been to any pub gatherings and whatnot. So, uh, yeah. Um, okay, so there you go. That's the current state of the world as it goes. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, I've written down new books. Why well, have I written new books, John? What do you reckon? Why well, have I written that? All right. I'm going to talk about some new books. Okay. Briefly. We have an agenda. Do you like birds? No, not really. Well, I do. And look at this all the birds of the world all the
0: birds of the world
1: right so as many of you interested in books and birds will know and books on birds uh lynx editions which is i think a spanish publisher possibly portuguese as you don't know they have barcelona barcelona they have produced this giant um series of books called handbook to the birds of the world i've got a whole bunch of them over there which is why i'm looking at them i've got like 13 volumes or so and um lynx editions they produced this one and it is all the
0: birds of the world oh my god look at all those they're all the same they're all the same animal darren (laughs) just
1: slightly different colors um (laughs) It's it's illustrations of all of the species and many but not all of the so-called subspecies. Is the banging really loud, by the way? Is it noticeable? Can't hear banging. Okay, because there's a crap ton of banging happening upstairs. Um, what's the animal on the cover? <laughs>
0: Avert your ears now, American listeners. Um... Why would you say that? Banging upstairs doesn't matter.
1: Oh, you filth! There's <laughs> building work happening upstairs <laughs> uh, what's that some sort of birdie bird that's Jeffrey jeffreyi the Philippines eagle formerly mm. the monkey eating eagle even though it didn't never eat no monkey mm. there's no monkey in the Philippines um, yeah so Lynx editions they produce this giant book it's really big it's
0: why do I do this it's got loads of pages in it. Loads of pages. I'd say Look, at least, a, what, about 800? Uh,
1: not old? more. 967 ish pages. And uh, it's big. It weighs, I'm going to say, that's probably like, I'm going to say 11 kilos. <laughs> and um, it's not cheap. It's uh, probably about 80 pounds. This is a review copy because I'm yeah. Darren Nash, don't you know? All the birds of the world, links editions. If you're interested in birds, have a look at it, buy it. Um, it's not just a picture book, so you'll notice that next to each illustration, you see there's a QR code. Yeah. So if you actually want you, uh, you know, if you if you want some text, then you scan it and uh, go to the website. Really? That's and, where uh, the text is. Wow. Yeah. Well, because how, how could you do all the birds of the world and yeah. text yeah. and because remember this is like. I get the feeling this is sort of like an afterthought, like having done the whole, how many volumes of the whole series it is, like 30 volumes. Like what if we just do one sort of like simple summary? Because who doesn't mm. like looking at really nice little paintings of birds? They're great. So,
0: so yeah, 80 quid is, is expensive, no doubt, but it's not a joke price, I think. you know, I wouldn't buy it you if know. I had to buy it,
1: because uh, my strange thinkings about money just stop me buying books that are over 40 pounds but there you go it's nevertheless i recommend it very highly because it is then, a big book and it's full of color prints so it's a big you know, book yeah and then i also 800 I mean, lo- pages of color 967 pages of color John. Oh, okay
0: sorry um have you seen this one i have seen it uh, no sorry i've seen you post about it i haven't actually see i'm this. I'm f-
1: like, I don't mean to be weird, but I'm like fingers on the pulse on books. I like know about books, you know, before they come out. You're, you're not, you don't, give a, you don't give a crap about books, do you? Mm, you just don't like really no.
0: know.
1: <laughs> so I'm like, oh, it's finally out. So I am talking about Michael J. Benson's Dinosaurs, New Visions of a Lost World with a dino- dinosaur on the cover. A flying dinosaur.
0: Mm, a flying dinosaur, my favourite sort of dinosaur. Pterosaur. Pterosaur. Starpods, obviously.
1: For some reason, thames and hudson the publishers decided to put a pterosaur on the cover and for some reason the author was okay with this shame on him
0: now this book you know darren i really do think it'd be easier if we just extended the dinosaurian node down a bit to include pterosaurs can we just not do that i mean then we just uh, it avoids this whole little pedantic like rubbish discussion of like well you know they're not technically dinosaurs they are quite closely related it's just stupid
1: i, I fundamentally disagree i mean you sound like robert back in 1986 obviously but um well
0: as I'm you have great, said i'm not a great believer in taxonomy anymore but yes
1: as you've said yourself i quote words mean stuff and the word dinosaur is attached to a bunch of animals and we pretty much agree on what that bunch of animals are. So it's not our fault that there are other animals that aren't dinosaurs, but people think are, because that doesn't mean anything. You know, the court of public opinion does not hold sway over what words mean.
0: I think well, it kind I, of does, but <laughs> no, no, no. Here, but here's what, I, here's what I think. So, yeah, it does. It absolutely does. It totally that does. is how words are defined. Yeah. Um, but, um, I think that this one is a bit like okay, because you obviously have people saying metroid one is a dinosaur, right? And when you correct them about that, they, they learn, learn something. Some, they, they learn something. Whereas if you correct things with them with about pterosaurs, it's like it, they have they've learned virtually nothing. Virtually nothing. You're so wrong. You're so wrong. No, you're so wrong. So I mean well, unless you want to go into phylogenetic taxonomy, so and that's wrong. what your point is. You're so what wrong. What have they learned? What have they learned?
1: You're so wrong. They've learned that, oh, those things are on the, like, dinosaur branch of the family tree, but they're not dinosaurs. And then nothing. it's also... That's literally not,
0: nothing. That's all you've said. They're not dinosaurs.
1: No, you've said that, hey, okay, if you, if you want to have, like, a proper discussion, uh, without hours long, you know, a couple minutes long, you say, look, dinosaurs and pterosaurs belong to this branch, it's the bird branch, and at some point in the uh, triassic like a bunch of little running ones evolved in this direction because remember di- it's not just it's not just pterosaurs are outside dinosaurs there's dinosaur and morphs. there's all these things that are you know like not dinosaurs but yeah,
0: which are tremendously
1: important for people to learn them. about yeah well, yeah but you but there's got there's more and more of those all the time Sure. So, I'm so. happy
0: that they're dinosaurs. That is absolutely fine. They're not dinosaurs either. I they're dinosauromorphs. How do you shorten that for people? Oh, it's a dinosauromorph, not a dinosaur. It's a it's a non-Plesiosaurian... Plesiosaurian. Sounds very oh, anti-intellectual. It's very oh, intellectual. God. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's not anti-intellectual, Darren. It's anti-phylogenetic. It's not even phylogenetic. It's taxonomic ped- pedantry in a lot of ways. These are basically... Dinosaur are basically dinosaurs. They're more close to early dinosaurs than birds are to early dinosaurs. So, you know, it's like calling those things dinosaurs is not a, a major error. It's barely an error at all, is it?
1: There's a process called evolution by which organisms change over time, which requires that groups have to evolve from other groups. They have to evolve from ancestral forms. So... Like, and there's a process
0: of taxonomy which muddies up all this stuff
1: Well, <laughs> uh, there's also a thing called history whereby <laughs> we try and remember the stuff that happened beforehand and if the general agreement like universally in the literature is that the word dinosaur goes to this specific group of animals and now you've found things that aren't in that specific group of animals i would think that our interest in um not inaccuratizing the st- stuff of the past requires that we stick with the definition of the word that we've agreed upon. So
0: okay, look, it's too late for pterosaurs. I, you know, it'd be like trying to the whole frontosaurus mess, for example, it's just, it's, it's this, uncorrectable. We've now. got, no, no, but, we've
1: got this, this argument. Now this argument is the wrong way round because we're, we're okay. So your approach, which you're not being entirely serious about is it's as if a decision has to be led by the lowest common denominator in the conversation. So you're not talking. If you this meet is someone, not the lowest common
0: denominator. If Darren, you okay, do you realize most people don't even know what an animal is. Of course, of course. Okay, okay. <laughs> but yeah, not but even if you're, close. If you're, you're having not even a close con- to the lowest common. If animal, you're having I mean.
1: a common, If you're having a conversation with someone who knows the words pterosaur or even pterodactyl, if they know the word pterodactyl and they know dinosaur, and they're assuming a pterodactyl is a dinosaur. It's not that they have a serious argument in support of that. It's because they didn't know that there's an opposite position. So all you have to do is as soon as you present the opposite position, you say basically what I've just been saying. It's like, yeah, they're on the dinosaur branch where they're not actually dinosaurs because we've agreed that they're outside the group that we call dinosaurs. And that's all there is to it. They're like, oh, okay, fine. It's not like well, I disagree because I find. No, know they don't disagree. But it's. Just I find like a in little, pterosaurs there's a sliding uh, classification. Poss-
0: sorry, sorry, that's not my argument. My argument is that it it it's it's bringing in a needed a, a small taxonomic issue, into, which always comes up. It's a little shiny object that people talk about, which is virtually uninteresting, right? That accidentally pterosaurs are outside of dinosaurs. It's just. <sighs> It's just an uninteresting little second. shiny object to talk about. Wait a We second. always end up talking about taxonomy with these things.
1: So what important. if pterosaurs aren't even on the dinosaur line of the family tree, then? What if they uh, go elsewhere within Archosaurus?
0: Like crown groups, so they're closer to crocodiles, for example. There, the there are. There are. No, no, no is, that what, is that what you're saying? So crown, saying, we're talking about crown groups.
1: No, we're not talking about crown groups. We're saying that there's other proposed phylogenetic
0: position oh, I, I know but so what I'm... yeah yeah
1: so what if they're not
0: on the dinosaur branch at all what well, if the they're... dinosaur branch is opposed to what like they
1: go elsewhere within the diapsid family tree
0: yeah, yeah yeah so something that's alive today right no
1: what if they're close to protorosaurs or you know some weird ass group that no one's ever heard of so you're talking about this as if so, it's they're, like... so they're
0: even less closer to dinosaurs than some other groups that is alive today
1: Poss- probably, yeah, yeah, because they'd be outside. Yeah, well, that's certainly a learning. Up, that's
0: certainly a learning experience. Yes, that they're they're really not even very closely related to dinosaurs would be a learning experience. They're just they're quite a long way. Yeah, I think that is I don't think, but don't are there think... a couple of nodes down in the tree, and there's a bunch of things in between them which no one's ever heard of?
1: Right there, you go. So John Conway thinks that we should call pterosaurs dinosaurs. Sure, why not? John Conway thinks pterosaurs dinosaurs. Sure, why not? That was that was a tangent that was tangent <laughs> for now for now hey, it's look it a,
0: says it on that book you're holding up there right now there's a famous <laughs> paleontologist on that dinosaur there's a pterosaur
1: yeah as endorsed by professor michael benton
0: yeah. it's a
1: very bad idea to put a pterosaur on the cover of a book called it's dinosaurs funny. you know there's a book called uh, i'm a, winning
0: darren i'm winning already
1: there's a famous <laughs> natural history monograph called i think it's the goshawk, and it's got a peregrine falcon on the cover. It's it's kind of like akin <laughs> akin to that. Um, someone shared a, someone shared a picture of a book, a darling Kennedy book called car called Cars, and it had a plane on the front. <laughs> it's a, I mean, okay, maybe a plane is a kind of car, but I don't think it is. Anyway, anyway, right, that <laughs> that, that Okay, so Di- dinosaurs: New Visions of Lost World by Michael Benson, published by Thames and Hudson. Right and endorsed by Steve Brasati, and I've already had a hilarious exchange with Steve Brasati about his, uh, uh, him, him, him. Um, <laughs> that painting is by our good buddy Bob Nichols, and the art in this book is by the Bob, is by the Bob Nichols. That was a John good. Civic picture, I don't know what that was doing in there, oh. but you've got, but oh, um, you've got stuff like that. Look at that, that's a, a, a brand new. Awesome. Bob Nichols' uh, Archaeopteryx, and there's many others. And I would say, having like read the better part of this book already, that um, um, it's worth it for the Bob Nichols illustrations. And I, the text. Okay, I'm gonna be frank. I thought the text was like so cursory that it's not really worth it. Um, no offense intended to Mike Benton,
0: but it's kind of like well yeah who's a, who's a pitched at
1: i mean so. new visions of a lost world i thought that we're going to get like really drilled down so like how do they know for example kalinda all this stuff about the life appearance of kalinda i thought we're going to get a really detailed review of like um it's just the text is just very cursory and it kind of like doesn't it doesn't feel to me like it really goes to town on what i was this is this is a this sounds like a me problem the more i think about it though because it's like darren you're always
0: expecting people to oh uh, yeah i think this this is aimed at uh, like a really popular audience right just yeah so you know oh i like dinosaurs i'm gonna buy a book about dinosaurs
1: sort yeah of and so thing. you get this thing where each section of text is kind of so like the archaeopteryx session section is just like a general sort of meandering skim of what's archaeopteryx. Well, it was found in 1860. It's from the Solnhofen limestone, long section on the Solnhofen limestone. Uh, then they found this, you know, they found this specimen, they found that specimen.
0: Or then so they. It's, and, is, it, is, it, is it written as if um, it's what Mike Benton can remember off the top of his head? I wasn't going to say that. But, I, you know, I think there's a place for those uh, yes. in many ways, right? Because this is, you know, this is probably you'll buy it for the illustrations if you've got a whole bunch of other books and know about dinosaurs. But, you know, so just a, like a, someone that doesn't have a lot of dinosaur books, maybe it's the first one, right? It's yeah. Fine. Yeah. I, I, I mean... And I, what's I think... great about it now is that you get state-of-the-art illustrations with that sort of book. Yep. Which... Didn't used to be the case, and that is now, and I think that is so good. Yep, yep. So, in general, I endorse it for the illustrations, and it's
1: a—it's not expensive. It's twenty quid or twenty-five pounds, which is which mm-hmm. is a good price for a book of this size. <laughs> so, dinosaurs: new pages of lost world. Um, finally, do you have a copy of this? You don't do you?
0: I don't, no, because normally you give me a book when you come here.
1: Good point, and I would have yeah. done. Dinopedia, Princeton University Press, a brief compendium of dinosaur law, is out. Has been out for a little while. Um, I've already spoken about it at length. I should just buy one, like an animal. It's like an animal. It's nine ninety nine, so even you can afford it. Oh John. wow! It's uh,
0: I to get find some it. crowdfunding on that.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, here's a now here's a photo I'm going to show you. You're not allowed to... If you recognise this person, you're not allowed to say their name on the podcast. But here's Okay, so it, this is good podcasting, then. Yeah, here's a person holding it. Do you know who that person is?
0: Um, it's a bit of a reflection on their face, but I don't think I do, no.
1: Uh, okay, okay. Well, a lot of other
0: people recognise him straight away. Is he some sort of celebrity? I can't
1: say anymore. I can mm. neither confirm nor deny. I don't know presence. very many
0: celebrities.
1: Well, there he is holding a copy of uh, Dynopedia. Uh, So He's
0: probably uh, pretty famous then, because I haven't yeah, heard of him.
1: He's pretty flipping famous. Um, do I need to say anything about Dynopedia? I've done a bunch of podcasts already about it. I did an interview with uh, uh, Love and the Time of Chasmosaurs a lot. Uh, although I say I did an interview with him. I spoke to Mark Vincent about it. Um and I've done... so Why am I even saying this? It's very boring. Anyway, Dynapedia is out. Please buy it. Nine ninety nine. And there's an article at TouchPod's audio... About <laughs> $9. It, right? 9 nine ninety £9.99. Wow, what a bargain. What a bargain, which is $16.95. Mm-hmm. Apparently. Um, so, cheap. Cheap. Right. News from the world of Darren and John... So the Ketzquerella monograph is out, but we don't want to talk about that. <laughs> There's a my thoughts on it are at Tetrapod Zoology, the blog. For those of you, uh, uh, my just,
0: thoughts on it will remain in my own head.
1: We we well, well, John and I have had like a 20 minute discussion about it, but it can't. Um, let's just say that the long, long, long awaited Ketzquerella monograph uh, as Darked pterosaurs is the like it's now the great go to reference work on as and john is one of the authors and has got art on the cover um new
0: artwork john oh oh you you're throwing over to me you don't have any new artwork darren no you probably do probably doing thousands and thousands and thousands of pictures for some book project aren't you here's a map of Pangea i drew just the other day look at that oh what 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 a beautiful thing thanks yeah so um my new artwork what have i been working on um, I've been working on a book for a long time. I don't know whether I've mentioned this on the podcast, but, um, I can't really talk about it because it's such a crash hot idea, Darren. I don't want anyone else stealing it. Um, I'm just going to go to my website and look at what I've actually done recently.
1: Someone has started to do the same thing as you and how they have been sharing it on social media. Oh, but I, won't, I won't say any more than that. But not as well as you. But exactly the same thing
0: yeah oh well yeah i've seen i think i've seen that yeah it's not quite the same thing it's all right um okay what have i done oh well my most recent painting is of a lasutosaurus maybe
1: i thought it was that one of the naked guy with the dinosaur
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh my christmas present to the world (laughs) Sometimes I like to do paintings which are just really awful for people to look at, just to see what people do. I
1: didn't because, share it for that reason. Yeah, me.
0: exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no one would. I'm not sure I, I, so it sat there for a long time with no favourites and no retweets, like <laughs> ages, and I thought, wow, is this going to be the first thing I've ever done that gets nothing? But unfortunately, <laughs> they started to come through. I think once it got a favourite, someone thought, oh, it's okay to favourite this, even if it is of a naked dude. <laughs> not, not an I, attractive naked i thing. I think that this is—it's um, partly to do with—it's <laughs> um, prejudice, isn't it? It's uh, prejudice because if that was an attractive lady, this thing would be way more popular. But don't make it like it's ugly. Don't, don't sexualise it, 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 is... it, it,
1: even if it was an attractive person, even if it's attractive. No, no, man. no.
0: But I think, no, no. I think, yeah, no. No, no, I chose lady deliberately because attractive Mm -hmm. men don't get the same sort of attention. Uh, Not online. You look at the number of favourites a beautiful man gets versus a beautiful lady. Same, basically the same painting, same style, same level of attractiveness in the painting. Um, So I'm always kicking against that. I want to (laughs) only paint ugly men. (laughs) So, yeah. I've got no idea really what the sauropod and the theropod and all that is. Oh,
1: it's it's just some... an idea that
0: came to me. I don't know.
1: God damn it. It's another one of your pictures where I think, wow, there's some there's some subtext here. He's going yeah. deep. And then it turns out, yeah. like, nah, it's like, what should I do with his hands? I'll put dinosaurs on him. <laughs> I thought I thought it was some clever, <laughs> existential, deep, sort of, you know, meaningful self-portrait, possibly. There's obviously
0: <laughs> stuff in there about, you know, good angel and bad angel and... um. Uh, theropod versus, sauropod, the great theropod the eternal versus dilemma. Sauropod. and also just sort of eating yourself with thoughts and things like that right I you know I'm not you shouldn't admit well, I, this stuff in crazy public. crazy ideas um come all the time but if they're not if they don't have any of these resonances I don't paint them
1: so I thought it's yeah.
0: not like I sit down and think I will do a metaphor for this or body bloody blah, 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 blah. You know, right. I tend to think of images and think, hmm, that's, that's a funny one. Why, why do I like that idea? And then you realize it's because it's got resonances and references and meaning there. It's not the other way around. You see. Because I think of thousands of images every day. Most of them are just complete rubbish.
1: This, for me, is the great dilemma when one uh, comments on art of any form, because we are told either okay we're it's either implied or we are explicitly told that encapsulated in art is some subtext and it can be totally shallow like this is a beautiful sunset and it can be super super deep this isn't just a sunset this is a metaphor for blah 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 whatever you know colonialism sexism and i'm often looking at those sorts of things thinking this person just wanted to just wanted to paint the sunset and uh, um, so I think in in a way I think it actually uh, shallowifies sort of nullifies the power that some artists imply that they have because it's like Do you like my? Okay, so the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square, you know, the the whole load of like big, expensive bits of art have been commissioned Mm. for the fourth plinth. And a few years ago, I wrote about this because I quite liked it. There's a giant blue cockerel. Mm. It's like, I I am a huge fan of chickens. I really like chickens. I like looking at chickens. So I'm like, what are you doing for the
0: chicken, meaning here? Like, like, it's a really big chicken. That's great. It's a
1: giant chicken. It's great. And, uh, but, but the artist is like, do you like my giant blue cockerel? Do you because? Because do you know what? Do you know what the French for cockerel is? Do you know the French cockerel as well? It's like, ooh, I'm so smart. Can you get the subtext? Uh, It's not the shallow um, thing to do with joke, you know, know, slang words for genitals. It's not that. It's more something to do with um, the British. I'm also a French artist. Did you know that? Oh, so. Uh, suck on that Bren, you got a giant blue cockerel (laughs) they're like, I'm like, no it's just a very attractive giant cockerel, it's beautifully made it's totally accurate and it just looks awesome, but no, we're like (laughs) that's my did you you read um, although, you um, know,
0: as I say a lot of this is, okay, so there are art projects that definitely think of you know, this is what I want to get across, some sort of deeper meaning, and then, and then you come up with the expressions of it. Those things do exist, but most of the time, it's the other way around, that's the way I explain it. You think of thousands of things, there are some things you like, why do you like them? Oh, it reminds you of this or this, and this has got this in it as well, or just visually interesting, as well as these other things going on. And what they say about a lot of great artists, is that they're extremely prolific. And why do they have to be prolific? Because they're doing this. They're just doing every random thing they think of and choosing the bits that work. It's sort of, it's not this, because artists have this tremendous pressure on them to explain their process. Like, this is how I get from my deep and meaningful insights into an expression that you can understand, right? And this is a, this is a really interesting process I go through because this is, you know, this is so common because it's the only thing you can really talk about. And nearly always, I suspect that that's rubbish, that yep. this is not our artists work at all. I
1: lived as a cockerel for 10 years. Before... <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, there are meanings here. And I would also point out that the what is conscious in there is my comment or deliberately putting a naked man in front of people be, on Twitter. because that is something people are uncomfortable with whereas I think if it was a bunch like women and things like that it's just they're way more comfortable with that yeah. and but although you know I, I messed it up a little bit because anything with dinosaurs on my feed gets more um mm. more attention and I put dinosaurs in this one so you know it actually did sort of okay pretty badly for <laughs> my artwork but like yeah got some favorites and him- retweets should have given him kidneys for hands or something. <laughs>
1: um, on the on on art and uh, how there is meant to be this like super super clever meaning to it. Are you clever enough to get it? I reviewed Ross Barnett's book, The Hidden Links, uh, earlier this year, and each chapter starts with a, po- with a poem. And I know, okay, in a in a way, poetry and paintings have got. Scarcely any similarity, but they are often grouped together. It's like this is art and blah 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 blah. Well, so... they're pretty similar, actually. Oh, okay, but they're yeah. pretty similar. Well, this is what I wrote. <laughs> I this I dislike poetry. I think mostly because poems are not merely pretentious and bilious. Is it pronounced bilious? Yeah. Okay. I dislike poetry I, I think mostly because poems are not merely pretentious and bilious but often written as if you're supposed to perceive instantly and instinctively the tempo and arrangement of the nonsense scatter of the words <laughs> thankfully Barnett doesn't feature too much of it because I, I I'm aware that that makes me feel like an anti uh what, what's what's someone who's arty someone who likes philistine.
0: you're a philistine
1: I was going to say an anti artian but a anti- Philistine. It does. We've it doesn't, got it, a word for that. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a Philistinian. Yeah, it's a Philistine. Um, Philistinic? Yeah. <laughs> it's it seems it seems like that, but I hope it's obvious and known that I'm not like that. I am quite appreciative of arty things, and um, but poetry, I'm just like so often you look at it and this this is just wank. This is just like air arty airy fairy bullshit that you're meant to appreciate and it's I just don't like it. I just don't get it. And you, and if you dare to say something like that, it's like this is just
0: I you're, also, made, you're made to
1: feel you're made to feel bad if you have that opinion.
0: Yeah, but I, I would I don't get poetry either, right? I just I don't I don't read it and get pleasure from it. And um my grandfather was a poet and a painter and a sculptor but he was always trying to get me into poetry. And, you know, I can sort of see his, his poems weren't like crazy things you wouldn't get. You know, you knew what he was talking about, but I, I just didn't get the aesthetic feel that you meant to get from that medium at all. Um, but I would caution against saying something is just complete wank if you don't get the medium, right? So yeah. you say you don't get the tempo. It doesn't jump off the page. It doesn't for me either. So it's a bit like on, well, tone deaf, you know, like you can't understand music because melodies mean nothing. And so it's just a bunch of noises. Why would you ever (laughs) listen to that, right? And so I think, hmm, if you're not getting the basic thing, which is the aesthetics of how words jump off the page with tempo and stuff, then maybe just writing off the whole field because it doesn't make sense feels a bit premature.
1: I was possibly being somewhat avant garde.
0: <laughs> yeah, you were being avant garde with your criticism. Yeah. Um no, I get it. I get it. Um this is why I yeah, but I'm I'm quite uh reticent to criticize things like that because I'm aware that I just don't get it at all. Mm. Whereas with painting I do feel much more like I can say, you know, I just don't think this is anything. Um and you know anyone who goes around a gallery with me will get an full of that. <laughs> um but yeah. Yeah. yeah, and in some ways, I just don't uh, public criticism of stuff. I used to like it, but I've gone off it a little bit. Um, in that, the the new criticism is ignoring something. What do you <laughs> so What do you mean by new? Just criticism? don't Just don't bother talking about it. Things die from lack of interest. So you know, criticizing something just feels well. If you're wrong, it's just unnecessarily hurtful, and um. Uh, people are going to come up, like, point out that I'm constantly going on about movies. Um, but yeah, in the privacy of my own home and my own podcast. But that's because we talk about movies, and I also feel that they're uh, such a massive um, mm. collaborative effort. I'm not really necessarily aiming at any particular person. It feels like that societally something has gone wrong with movies to me, rather than individual people who work on films. Mm. They're probably very talented, but something goes wrong yeah anyway complete side (laughs) tangent we should talk (laughs) about animals it's the tetrapod zoology podcast and we're an hour in and we haven't even talked oh we did we did a bit on taxonomy okay yeah let's talk about animals uh can we is that next in the agenda or something else like no okay hang on hang on darren i've got something else to say on on art and uh it is relevant (laughs) it's about dinosaur stuff okay um yeah so i've been doing some dinosaur stuff obviously i've got a whole bunch of paintings um ready to go next month and i've been playing around with this idea of um uncomp, as i call it uncomposition which is trying not to frame the pictures or position the animals in a way mm. that they're in a picture um and my lesutosaurus here is um uh the very sort of glimmer of that idea where i stuck its head down a burrow because you can nearly always see dinosaurs heads in paintings right yeah but if you see something it's got to be its head otherwise what is it? it's just a lump right and so i've been thinking about this as sort of a naturalistic way of viewing animals is to really try not to do that um and especially thinking about what you would really see of dinosaurs and stuff in the in the mesozoic especially in forested environments it would always be glimpses of bits and pieces as anyone that's you know, seen wild animals for real in the, in the wild knows and a lot of the time you don't get a very good view. You get, you get a bit of a thing, bit of a head. It's kind of difficult to make out what it is. And often that's not just because it's far away. It can be relatively close. It's because animals blend into their environments and you see them from unexpected angles with unexpected obstacles in front of them. And so that's what I've been doing recently in some, these paintings where... I'm trying to randomise these sorts of things. It's quite difficult to do to be properly random, and um, thinking and wanting to move things like I, I wh- what I've been doing is closing my eyes and moving layers around, <laughs> moving layers around so that the animals just end up wherever. It's not perfect because obviously there's a limit to how much I can move the mouse and blahdy blah, but it's always tempting when I let it go. I think oh, if it was just, just nudge no, just this little bit there, you could see this or it would be just this little bit better if it was just like this. Um, so it's really interesting um, from an artistic perspective, just how much we want to force things into this way we're used to viewing pictures and especially. Um, paleo art, dinosaur art, we're really. Can you see the animals and is the composition good? it's sort of even, even the best, like most naturalistic paleo artists like um, uh, Doug Henderson is an obvious one that people will point out um, here who does large environments, small dinosaurs, sometimes large groups and this sort of thing. Um, And sometimes somewhat obscured, but even so they're really pretty clear a lot of the time and the compositions are really tight. Um, So I just don't think it's,
1: I think it's a good argument. I think you should write it up. It's not. There's...
0: It's not. It's not an argument for how things should be done. It's no. Just like what? What does it look like when you actually do it?
1: Right. So, um, is your Lesotosaurus picture that you're talking about online? I yes, seen it. it is.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, have you seen this
0: drawing and painting dinosaurs by Emily Willoughby? Emily
1: it? Willoughby, because no, well, while you're talking there, I'm reminded of this piece, which. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, okay, that's not exactly the same as what you're describing, but uh, uh, in the vein of Doug Henderson, who you mentioned, that is a, a painting that's about the environment. It's beautiful, and it's got a dinosaur in it, which, of course, is how we often... I mean, I, I think I've probably said before, may either on this podcast, or I might have said it in the, the thing I did for Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, I want to di- see... Not just dinosaurs, I want to see prehistoric animals in their environments because I want to see them as animals. So I devote like almost no space in my brain to images like that. Yeah. So just an animal on a white background. I yeah. just don't remember it. Whereas anything that shows the animal, okay, there's Emily's Zen Yuan Long looking at its own reflection, anything that sort of makes it feel like it's in a real environment, doing the thing that a real animal would do. Yeah, is uh, so em- Look at that; that's cool. So um, emphasize. <laughs> look, a podcast. Look, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Dononicus and Zephyrosaurus. Um, yeah. Anything that emphasizes, you know, if you follow me on social media, you know that I'm like I go out to the woods as much as I can and just take photographs of like woodland scenes. I just absolutely adore the colors, shapes, hues, and lighting of the natural world whether there's animals in it or not so um absolutely yeah. love the idea of paleo art that's about those things i know oh, it happens that this is paleo. it happens that this is paleo art it doesn't have to be you know this might not be paleo art. If there wasn't a, if it wasn't
0: a paleo scene
1: it's not yeah from-
0: i from agree although that i think that is somewhat of a different aim because my uh it will naturally end up somewhat more similar mm. um but my my idea is still about the experience of the animals so uh so yeah you can do pictures where the environment's tremendously important um even the majority or like the um the point of the picture is the environment and you happen to have some animals in it right that that's a that's a thing as well but even so they tend to be composed right they tend to have nice compositions of the environment The animals in it are arranged in a certain way, right, that make it a good picture a lot of the time. Well, all the time.
1: There was an award-winning Wildlife Photographer of the Year uh, photo from probably many years back now. I think of it as reason many years back. And it was a waterhole photo showing an elephant. Let me just get an elephant. I have one in uh-huh. hand.
0: Such good, such good podcast. Yeah. <laughs>
1: and the, and I see, let's see if I can ar- arrange the composition. Okay. The, the photo was the photo was that. Right. So it was just sort of the yeah.
0: Bit of most of the hind leg and the belly.
1: Yeah. The whole but point not, was yeah. Like da, 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 there's the elephant going out of shot. Yeah. You know, like yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: That's a, yeah. That sort of sort of thing. Much yeah. like a lot of our what um, amateur wildlife photography is
1: <laughs> i really like um photographs that i've taken where the animals are sort of like indistinct blobs in the background It's like i think that's a bunch of crows but it could just be bushes <laughs> i have i have to hand this green woodpecker on a lawn <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which uh i think that's a greenwood woodpecker. yeah it is a greenwood woodpecker. Mm-hmm. yeah um so yeah i i yeah I'm on, I'm on board with that more 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 experimentation in paleo is good and um more naturalism also to a degree
0: oh yeah i I can't imagine this is gonna like result in a whole new wave (laughs) wave. (laughs) but but i think it is a funny thing to pursue for a few paintings conway wave (laughs) conway (laughs) the new the new all yesterdays
1: (laughs) yeah oh man that all yesterdays thing that's been going on wow yeah
0: 10 year anniversary next
1: year we should um i did say we should do a revised and updated edition
0: um okay what else have we got
1: okay so in the news from the world darren john thing did i ever talk about the spinosaur paper that's published early no i don't
0: i don't think so yeah
1: well it's been done to death so i'm not going to say much about it apart from the fact that um, earlier this year um myself and a long list of um co-authors led by chris barker um, I'm affiliated with Neil Gosling's group at the University of Southampton. And um we've got a whole like list of projects um relating to wheeled and dinosaurs, which is one of my sort of research specialties, it's got a whole bunch of things in the works. And um for some years now, myself and others have been working on these two new baryonikene spinosaurs from the um Lower Cretaceous Rocks of the Isle of Wight. When I started work on these. The big thing was, wow, two Baryonyx-type dinosaurs, both found in relatively close proximity mm. um, in the Wessex formation of the Isle of Wight. And it's like, wow, two of them found next to each other. Let's do some morphometrics on their teeth. Are they Baryonyx walkerite, or are they a different species? And the results indicated that they were a different species. They're probably not Baryonyx walkerite. I already had reasons for thinking that. But since those initial um, preliminary results, it turns out that both animals are represented by much more material than I first realized, and seeing this new paper they've been named as two new taxa Ceratosucops infrodios and Riroventta milneri 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 I don't know how to say it they're not definitely sympatric with baryonicx walki It's from a different sedimentary basin it's a slightly different age. They're similar to baryonics walki, but they're also seemingly more similar to sucaymus.
0: Tenarensis from Niger. How different are they? So they're 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 found in the same sediments, they're the same same place. Yeah. Um, Essentially. Well, they're found
1: in rocks of the same. If you mean the two Wessex Formation ones. Yeah, yeah. They're from the same unit, the Wessex Formation. Mm. One of them was found in loose blocks on the beach. That is um and the other one was found in situ. So the one that was in situ, um, Ripra Veneta, <clears throat> you can work out, we know exactly where that comes from within the Wessex formation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But the other one, Svarosukops, we can't say exactly like where that goes within the Wessex formation. And that's a problem. Mm-hmm. So you yep. can't say whether they are or are not contemporaneous. They could be, but they also could not be. Mm-hmm. And of course any one of these geological formations we tend to those of us who specialize on fossil animals tend to associate given species with given formations like tyrannosaurus rex is from the hell creek formation but even as as if like that block of time is characteristic of that species but even those blocks of even the blocks of time represented by those geological units are long they they're often several million years like might be a tiny chunk of geological time, like 4 million years, 4 million years is still a ridiculously long time. <laughs> Think of what it means in terms of like, you know, the history of our species and hominins in general, we are less than half a million years old, for example. Yeah. Um, you don't expect a species, you know, current thinking on dinosaurs and tetrapods in general, actually, is that they last for like one or 2 million years. So even if you know things, even if you know a species is from the same formation, it still could; they still could be separated by anything, anything from centuries to you know hundreds of thousands of years. We just don't know, but that's not. I, I don't. I always say that. I always go through that to start with. But that's not crucial to our, our argument about them being distinct. What's crucial to our argument about them being distinct? Is that they have autapomorphies? They have distinctive features that make them different from each other and from other barionikines. So, what are you supposed to do? This is the problem. It's like it's very you know we uh, forgive me those of you who oh, I feel like I've said I've said this so many times before, but the people listening to this won't have heard it maybe you second guess yourself when you name new dinosaurs you know straight away that people are going to say oh they're just growth stages oh they're just sexes of the same animal so well they might be but that's contrary to the actual anatomical de- anatomical you know information we've got you um, know if we find these anatomical differences and they don't look like we're not talking about one of them's got a slightly thicker snout than the other one we're talking about a long list of you know specific very specific unusual anatomical details the only interpretation that you've got is that in the absence of data indicating otherwise you know we don't have reason for thinking that those are intraspecifically variable details they instead are this looks like the sort of stuff that elsewhere in the fossil record allows us to distinguish genera genus level
0: yeah i think that yeah, you know, if you're making these distinctions based on anatomy, and you would if they came from different formations, right? Then you should if they come in the same formation. They're just it might make you think if it's an edge case. Eh, it's more likely that they're the same thing than otherwise, right? Yeah. But yeah, I, I agree. I don't. I don't see any other way around it, really. Yeah. And then, you know, it's it's just basically correct. I mean, this is what we're doing in the fossil record. We're we're distinguishing between things that can be distinguished.
1: Exactly. If you find diagnostic features, your assumption shouldn't be that, oh, we can explain them away, which is how a small number of people seem to approach this. It's that our only recourse at the moment, based on the data we have right now, is this has to be the conclusion.
0: Yeah, although growth stages, I think, are because we really... (laughs) We really do want to understand that stuff, yeah. don't we? Because so, that's really that's mo- probably more important than distinguishing new species of dinosaur at this yeah. point is understanding their growth stages. So that does actually need to be looked at in a huge amount and of I detail. But that's in some ways a separate research stream. Yeah, separate. and I
1: don't well, I, I don't want to imply that that's like a thing we ignored or didn't look at because it was yeah. the, it was our first exponent. It was our first assumption that they would prove to be variants of the same species, but they've yeah. got diagnostic features like i said that's what i've been emphasizing but secondly they're the same size and they're at the same growth stage mm. so if one of them was half the size of the other one and had like unfused skull bones straight away i think our assumption would be oh yeah that's a sub-adult or a juvenile or whatever and the differences are you know due to growth but that's not the case it's like these two animals serathosucops and riprovenator are about the same total length. They're reconstructed about the same total length. You know, the bits of them that we've got imply they're the same length. And they're the same as baryonyx or as well. And um, they're, at, yeah, a similar staging growth in terms of what's fused and what isn't fused and that sort of thing. So, and then a, a sort of, um, what do you call it? Like a bit of contextual information is our assumption, again, shouldn't be that it's a problem to have two or three um contemporaneous or semi-contemporaneous or sympatric animals of this kind because as i as we say in the paper and as i said in the touchboard zoology article on this um the Mesozoic record shows us that that's like normal it's like in a fauna and of course we're never really talking about faunas we're talking about animals that seem to be approximately sympatric in the same you know time and place um it seems that having two or three similar size, big theropods, even closely related ones, is the norm. Yeah. You, know, you, you name a unit, a geological unit, that's yielded a big theropod, and it's never just one. It's like, well, okay,
0: there's a few where it's one, but it's most. <laughs> well, yeah, there's probably quite a few with one, but that's a sampling yeah. thing, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the not ones that... Tremendously... Fossil-bearing those formations. Basically. That's right. Yeah.
1: The ones that have yielded a bunch of dinosaurs. There's like, you know, two, three, or more big, sometimes um, you know, ecologically, behaviorally quite similar, yeah, uh, theropods. So, Wealden strata span in total like 30 million years, and their mo- the sediments were mostly laid down in floodplains. Um at the edges of giant meandering rivers and swampy places. Uh it's not all like that. There's there's times when you've got like evidence for big savannas and sort of hilly areas and estuarine incursions and whatnot. But mostly it's dominated by sandstones, mudstones, and siltstones laid down in in sort of you know swampy riverine environments. And there's good evidence for like a diverse uh flora. So there's lots of forested places. And then there's also, like, tons of other animals, like loads of fishy things and amphibians and, you know, crocodilomorphs and a good diversity of dinosaurs. So, in other words, what I'm saying is it's exactly the kind of environment where you would expect dinosaurs like spinosaurids to actually, you know, um, hang around of, like, you know, a couple of taxa over that span of time. You'd expect there to be a few yep. associated with it and that seems to be born out here. So this initial our initial paper is in scientific reports. It's open access so chris barker at at et, et al uh new spinosaurs from the west formation education uk and the european origins of spinosauridity because our phylogenetic analysis finds europe to be probably the ancestral home for spinosaurids which is interesting. Um the As a scientific reports paper, it's the preliminary first take on these two animals and a full descriptive monograph led by Chris um, is in preparation. And while doing this stuff, we went and looked at as much Wilden spinosaurid stuff that we could. And guess what? We found others. (laughs) There's there's like, I'm not going to announce it now because obviously, you know, we'll make a big deal out of it when we publish it. But there's more. There's more stuff to publish. So I'll say that. So that's that's pretty good. It's a pretty big achievement to have that paper published this year. Very happy about it. Um cool. and then also, okay, also on Wield and Theropods. What thing have I been trying to get published for something like 15 years now? Not, well, not like the textbook. Just not about
0: every project here. Yeah. do you know There's a few of those yeah. aren't there yeah. yeah do you
1: know what my main thing is though the main
0: eotaranus
1: to... monograph. monograph so have you seen me say anything about this no well it was accepted for publication last week i think so it's finally it's happening okay. It's finally happening. It won't be published this year. It will appear in early... There's not uh, much time now. <laughs> sorry, it's, sorry, I'm still in 2021. For those of you listening, in 2022, it will be published early 2022. So, um, yeah, I've got to pay for it. And as, as is known, this, I'm not keeping this a secret, I raised the funds through a GoFundMe drive. And um, uh, to publish a monograph, it's just a you know, big 100-page thing, in PeerJ, the open access journal PeerJ, which I wanted it to go. And there's a long backstory to that. i changed venues several times. Um, in order to publish a monograph, you have to pay. And you have to pay a not insubstantial 600 quid-ish, something like mm. 600 pounds, which, which is like, I don't just have 600 quid kicking around that I can just spend on something like this. But it's also not an impossible amount to, you know, to get if you do the right things. And, um, you know, ordinarily people apply for grants to cover that sort of money or have a grant, even when they, you know, they do their scientific work with a grant. I don't have that. I'm not in that position because, well, I was never successful in getting grants when I was a salaried scientist and... I have been unsuccessful in getting grants since being a freelance like doing science in my spare time scientist um so I thought well it's I I did try and get grants to cover this and was unsuccessful so I thought I forget who actually suggested it someone did actually suggest you should just do a GoFundMe thing I've probably spoken about this on the podcast before but um
0: I, oh. I think all this has been since <laughs> the last podcast. No, no, it's, it's surely nine, you would Surely, what it's 2017.
1: It? Yeah, 2017. I did it in 2017 because I because I thought then oh. this there's a long and annoying, stupid backstory to the publication of this monograph, which I'll share when I write it up for Tet Zoo, once it's actually published. But several times it went through review and got close to publication, and then something bad happened. All my fault because I can't get something back from review and turn it around in a month. I have to turn it around in like four months, which is unacceptable for scientific venues. So they often do something really bad from a personal point of view. It's not bad for them, but it's bad for me. They send it out for review again. It's like, great. That's just like, so now you're going to, have to now you've delayed it by like another year. Cause I'm not a working scientist, not a salaried scientist. I do it in my spare time. So 2017 i got pretty close to the completion of it thought now's the time to, to raise the money go fund me account and i think i'd raised the i want to say i think it's 700 pounds whatever 600 700 pounds i raised the amount and then some raised more than the amount within a few hours in like four hours so brilliant got that i mm-hmm. got an ea Tyrannis account and because i actually got more than i needed to cover the publication of the monograph I've used the remainder of the money on some other different things. Like I actually paid for, we haven't spoken about the Dinosauroid paper, which I've also published in 2021. I paid to have the, the, the full, um, color, Eleanor Kish Dinosauroid painting included in the, um, published version of the paper, which again is an, is not a ridiculous account uh, amount, but it's still 300 quid. Mm. And, um, that burnt up, like, uh, yeah, the rest of the money. So it has has gone on sciency things, if you can call the dinosauroid
0: sciency. But it it's a technical paper. It's, oh, it's in, definitely it like, sciency. News from the world of news. Um,
1: all of that was news from the world of Darren and John. Oh wow! News from the world, yeah. (laughs) News from the world of news from the world of news. This is what
0: happens if you don't podcast for a year. Yeah, yeah, Uh,
1: yeah. (laughs) Porcelain pick and East Dog. I think that was meant to be associated with news in the world of news. News in the world of Darren and John, not news in the world of news. Um, There's so much sciencey news stuff that's relevant to. The Tetsuniverse. universe. You mean some things have happened in the last year? Some, some <laughs> things have happened in the last year. Um, so let's skip that. Yep. Um George Olshevsky is no longer with us. Mm-hmm. I now George Olszewski won't be known to many uh like people that are interested in dinosaurs and stuff, but if you've been in it for a couple of decades, he's one of those people who's, you know. Mentioned here and there and pops up in these, like, you know, the, the stuff from the 80s that I'm always talking about that I regard as foundational, which I do big up in Dinopedia. Um, yeah, he's like a background player in that. Um,
0: yeah, and lots of people were on the dinosaur mailing list while he was on it, I suppose, and things like that. Yeah. Right? Yeah.
1: So, should, yeah, well, I mean, okay, so George. Um, died um this month december 2021 i don't know the exact circumstances i know that he'd been in ill health for about a year i don't know if it was anything to do with covid um he would have been in his 70s i think i don't have any biographical information to hand on him really Uh, but yeah for me he was just like as a kid Growing up in the eighties, looking at these books like David Lambert's—I don't know what's—I don't know what David Lambert's situation is these days. Whether he's still around, I haven't seen him for years. David Lambert wrote a book in nineteen eighty-three called Collins Guide to Dinosaurs, and another one in nineteen ninety called the Dinosaur Data Book. Which, if you're like a dino nerd kid growing up at that time, they were the sort of go-to Bible-type books. Basically, George Olshevsky stuff is always mentioned as like, oh, if you want to know the full taxonomic history of these animals, or if you want to see a full taxonomic list, get a hold of George Olshevsky stuff. I'm like, I have never sent any piece of mail outside the UK. I don't even. I don't know how to. Yeah, uh, that was um, that was me as a kid. Not. As, <laughs> well, um, yeah,
0: people so, don't. Re- yeah, young people today. God, the world before the internet. You would hear about these things and how do you get hold of them no one knows right yeah. <laughs> and it was I always... called Greg Paul on his actual telephone I did an international yep. phone call and it's like mom mom can i phone greg paul <laughs> and i got an answering machine
1: was it the one with the welcome to the mesozoic sound effects yeah barely never hear on that yeah. yeah i've 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 just heard rumors of uh, yeah. his his old answering machine message but, yeah, it's it's uh, it's funny, um the actual... And, of course, I, here, here I go again with something weird, so, something weird specific to me. But people that are writing these books and the sort of... If you say, write to George Olszewski in San Diego, that's being written by, like, a proper adult. And yet me, as not a proper adult, as, like, a teenager with no goddamn money like that's just not a thing I can't even afford to send mail to San Diego. So um yeah I, I got I got all of this stuff later in later in life. Arcosaur articulations uh what was his newsletter called? He did a newsletter. But yeah so pre-internet this was how you you know if you really wanted detailed stuff which which kind of weirdly was almost impossible to get from like actual technical paleontologists. Mm. I think I, I, I mean people think it's weird because as a kid I wrote to, I wrote to Angela Milner at the Natural History Museum who um, I, I've written about this on TouchPods already who is no longer with us Angela Milner died this year um, and I said you know please Dr Milner can you send me full classification for all the Arkansas? <laughs> well of course like today I fully understand she's like fuck off I'm kind of busy. <laughs> but as a kid i was like oh she can't do it because she said she said yeah i got go
0: in their ivory towers <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: she did say um go to um um bob carroll's 1988 vertebrate paleontology and evolution textbook mm. which again completely unobtainable to me because it was like i don't know 40 pounds at the time it's a lot of fortune i could never dream of that kind of money um so i got my school to get hold of it and they did and I was bitterly disappointed because it's just the taxonomic list. It's the, he's got a taxonomic list at the back. Of that's
0: the what you asked for, that's, Darren. That's what you asked for. Yeah.
1: I wanted full classification, like, like, yeah. Um, but Olshevsky stuff provided that, and
0: yeah, there's sort of a um, there's always been. Uh, I'm struggling for the right word, but some sort of amateur, nerdy. Listy sort of thing, which niches are filled by people like of Oshels- Shelsky, which are really um pretty useful and interesting. Um, yeah. and I think a lot of that's kind of been replaced a little bit by Wikipedia. You know, yeah. it's so um, comprehensive now. But before that, you, these lists were pretty in were pretty useful
1: it's the case it's the case for many groups of organisms that the people that provide this kind of data mm. like like not just like listing of every single species not just a list but it's actually when we talk about taxonomic lists it provides the data on authorship like who named it yeah. and what material it's based on what the holotype is like things think and then the syn- the synonymy list like which you know, which other species are probably the same thing, which are different, and what needs a new name, what needs to be worked on. That kind of thing is what we're talking about, and it's always been in biology, mostly been, I should say. It's been amateur hobbyists, and it's probably because they can devote, or they're prepared to devote the time required to do this kind of thing, whereas working academics are too busy doing, like, the cutting-edge... Yeah it's not really it's not stuff.
0: really science is it it's a uh, bookkeeping of science mm, it's a
1: kind of bookkeeping yeah, yeah and there's no and it's useful yeah. right? like you say it's needed to be done but generally call it like academically um employed scientists generally just can't do this stuff yeah so, <laughs> like yeah,
0: you you grant proposal I want to write out a big long list of the taxonomic history mm. of all these animals mm.
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah so the ten, so there's, yeah so it's really common uh, across the biological sciences for it to be these amateur hobbyists yeah. And on the one hand, it means that they're super useful. They're often like beloved and they're really, you know, we like having these guys around. On the complete other side of things, they can also be total rogue, hack, charlatan, no man's land kind of characters, which just decide they they start acting on things. Mm. Olszewski oh, did this. He did start acting on things like this clearly needs a new species name. So I'm doing it because no one else is. And he did it for a bunch of things, but he wasn't that bad. He didn't create whole messes of, you know, like, you know, new names willy nilly, but there are people that have done. So there's, yeah, people familiar with my stuff or listeners, this podcast will, will be aware of taxonomic vandalism. So you've got a bunch of them in the insect world. Um, beetles in particular and in the living reptile world and of course ray hoser is you know the main guy there. publishing he's published more new taxonomic names than i think all other herpetologists in history together <laughs> he's like the single greatest or in the ironic use of that term the single greatest provider of new taxonomic names for amphibians and reptiles he's also started publishing on mammals and arachnids as well now because he's seen the same thing seen the same opportunity there <laughs> So, oh, their their, cl- their cladogram shows that that subspecies you know not grouping with the rest of that species therefore it needs a new name so he jumps on it gives it one of his silly names mm. so that can happen with these with these hobbyist characters Olshevsky wasn't bad at it generally did a useful service um And then, like, in the 90s, Olszewski, um, I don't know the full backstory to this model, but I've written a bit about it, this Birds Come First model, where we just came up with this totally new take on... He did always, it seems, from his writings, he did always have his own interpretations of... He didn't look at technical published work and just, like, absorb the conclusions on, like, the shape of the you know specific the evolution of specific lineages within the animals he was interested in which is basically all archosaurs, not just dinosaurs he tended to come up with his own models his own things and his own like views of how the animals were related and you know and um and it's interesting to know why he did that because um on the one hand doing that obviously you have to be you have to be like an expert and he obviously thought he was expert enough and i'm I'm not saying he wasn't i'm saying he obviously did know enough to come up with things but it also i also think there's i don't mean to be rude here but it also seems that there's a there's a big chunk of arrogance that comes with that for you to say that we all know that scientists who publish on groups of animals have generally spent a lot of time with the specimens they've done a, a huge if you look at you know character codings how much work is involved in actually doing like a big analysis a proper one the amount of work and the amount of familiarity you have to have with a number of like specific anatomical bits and pieces is really vast and to sort of think that you can just read technical papers and come away with a totally alternative take or just dismiss all of that stuff
0: although sometimes yeah yeah of course it is and you know he kept it up well in to the era where this is true but I think you have to remember that early on especially like in the 90s a lot of this stuff wasn't really like that a lot of the like proper takes from well-known paleontologists were basically guesses because they weren't doing cladistics Um, a lot of it was pretty shaky and I do think that there was space for these sorts of ideas well are you sure you've got any of this right because as far as we can make out there's not really any system here and maybe i can just think of some stuff and say it which you know i don't think he was right in the end uh but greg paul was arguably more right than wrong and he had a similar approach um yeah so i don't know yeah i think at the time i don't think this stuff was actually all that out there i think academics were actually doing pretty well the methodology wasn't really there it was um it was shaky right the whole phylogenetic shape take was was shaky well um yeah so i don't i think at the time it wasn't so bad
1: (laughs) i take yeah i i think that's a fair point we we probably have touched on non-standard hypotheses before but there's such interest in it Mm. and there's so much to say Let's leave that for now. But anyway, the whole point there is that George Olszewski, kind of well-known character um, among those of us interested in that kind of stuff uh, is, is with us no more, which is kind of sad. I did, I did know him, I met him a couple of times and um, used to correspond with him regularly. And as a consequence, have got nearly all of the stuff that he ever wrote <laughs> uh, at least on dinosaurs. Cause I think he was a bit of a polymath. He was interested outside <laughs> his website. You say, you know, interests, um, you know, all this dinosaur stuff historical taxonomy, but then also um, classical music and also some specific, there's a specific shape he was interested in, yeah. like polydihodecadidrons or something, and he devised this new multi-polygonal shape oh, and yeah, uh, okay. he was interested in the I don't, Yeah, value. my
0: only brush with him was really dinosaur mailing list and I only knew these he, dinosaur stuff. Okay, that's interesting. So he was interested in all sorts of weird things, huh?
1: Yeah, we should stop there. Um, So.
0: uh... Right, so it doesn't sound like there's any chance to podcast then.
1: No. Not before going back to work, that's what I'm saying. So like when we'll do another one.
0: (laughs) Who knows? Who knows? Yearly podcast. A yearly podcast. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Next year, twenty twenty two is gonna be unbelievable. Just nuts. This when all this stuff comes to fruition. Finally. Good. Yeah. Can't say any more on that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How secret is it still completely
1: yeah. secret not allowed, to, not allowed to I mean I haven't it. been talking about it but I was wondering. yeah NDA'd up to
0: I mean thousands the, of people must know right so I'm sure I
1: don't know about thousands but hundreds yeah
0: you know. yeah hundreds of people do know so thousands of people by extension definitely know right is Matrix is the Matrix out even I watched
1: it last night so I think so right
0: uh, June is definitely out but
1: yeah yeah saw
0: that a while back yeah um, we I we watched the old one in preparation for watching the new one, and then thought, sort of, oh, do we really want to watch the new one right after watching the old one? And the answer was no. Yes, so would. I've got to say, I yeah. did not enjoy <laughs> did not enjoy. The, Have you not seen it before the old one? I'd seen bits of it. I realized, but I'd never seen the whole thing, and. Um, oh. I mean, I appreciate it. It was kind of crazy. And some of the scenes I thought were good, but no, overall, I just thought, what a train wreck. What a,
1: it's one, what a it's, train wreck. You know, it's, well, it's one of those films with a total train wreck backstory. Yeah. because Yeah, I've read about how that you, too. Yeah, because yeah, like like turning a book like that into a film just doesn't work and they try all kinds of things and then it gets messed around so much. Do you know that if you went to see... When, 1984, whenever it came out, I don't remember when June came out, the first one, but it was so complicated and so messy. They decided at the last minute to put this like giant, stupid prologue in it, so you have to sit through five minutes of someone talking, yep. and when you went to the cinema, you were given a sheet of paper that was a glossary of all the terms used <laughs> in the film. <laughs> so uh, Honestly,
0: yeah. it doesn't come across as that hard to follow. I don't think any of that would be necessary for modern audiences. I don't know what they, worried, they were worried about maybe back then yeah. it was harder to follow i don't know but yeah the new one is a movie too instead of making a television show like everyone else is i don't understand like it's if it's a well, huge it's the first... story then oh they're gonna
1: make yeah, another the first freaking... the first in a sequel uh yeah, it's a, tr- a trilogy oh,
0: god it's one of those movie televisions television programs like they are now
1: well it's like okay it's a film made for the cinema in terms of its sound and visuals. So if you're interested in watching movies like that, then it should be seen. At the what same I'm
0: time interested in is a whole big dump of 10 episodes. I don't want to watch like a movie and then wait a year and watch another movie. I've forgotten everything. It's just stupid. Just wait until it's all over. But when will it be over? <laughs> like 20 years? No, this is not the way to tell a story of June or anything like no. that. What a, uh, it's mind boggling. I mean, so, June of all things.
1: I've, I'm quite happy to see the experience of a film in a cinema <sighs> so i don't feel it the same i don't see the same way and they've absolutely. made the
0: foundation trilogy of all things a television show and my god are they stretching yeah. that out have you seen any of that
1: no i haven't because i've read the books back in the day and i found them so tedious <laughs> surely a tv series is gonna be bloody boring it's very <laughs>
0: fucking terrible yeah. it's really bad it's just it's like cringingly bad the whole way through and then i was thinking yeah but the books were bad too so Huh. I don't understand I watched... Asimov. I don't know. Get why he's a bad writer, his ideas are middling. I just, he's not a great sci fi writer. I don't understand.
1: I'm not, yeah, I haven't really enjoyed When I did read sci fi, I didn't really enjoy Asimov that much. No, relative to oh. people like Clark, but um, yeah, exactly. Um, I've, I've, I haven't watched anything sci fi. I gave up on Star Trek Discovery like in one season, I forget which one. It went really, really downhill in my opinion. Mm. And, um, I think I'll, we watched about three episodes of that and decided it was. Dumb. I haven't. I haven't seen any of the new newer seasons of the Expanse. I thought that was okay. Mm. Um, I've watched a lot of other things though, but they're just not sci-fi. Right? I yeah. just finished watching a thing called Lodge Forty Nine, which I really enjoyed. Which is a, uh, you know, like um, these sort of, s- you know, like the stone cutters. In The Simpsons, where Homer turns out to be a member of that secret organization, the Stonecutters yeah. Guild or whatever, so Lodge Forty Nine is about that kind of thing, and uh, I I enjoyed that. I thought that was great. But um, no um, Homer's. There's no Homer Simpson. Is not in it. <laughs> but um, can't think of what else I've seen recently. Just,
0: yeah, I've been watching some sci-fi, but yeah, the problem is that there's nowadays. Um, people haven't seen the same things on television necessarily because it's the subscription services, right? So some of the stuff I'm watching, like the Foundation Trilogy and um, what's the one we watched recently, Invasion, are on Apple TV. And understandably, lots of people don't have that. Um, Mm. So it's getting difficult to talk about these things. And people aren't going to the cinema, so they're not going to see um, the big releases either. I will just say that the Apple, um, invasion thing, which was yeah. about alien invasion sort of war of the Worlds ish was really pretty bad. <laughs> is it, it's is just, it new? It's, because... it is, I think it is. It's got Sam Neill in for one episode. Oh, feels like a trick though. Cause he died. Ooh. Spoiler. Spoiler. He dies in the end of the first episode. Um, so it feels like they just got some big A-lister in for one episode, and that's just so dreary and boring. It's like, oh god, why do you make these things? Uh, I,
1: there was a thing in the late '90s that I think was called Invasion, and I, 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 it was a, it was implied that it was about aliens that were already here, and they'd already like you know taken human form or something. But you never. Uh, I was always like, "Where is it going? And why did I never find out where it went?" And that's because it was cancelled after like, the first season, so they never they never explained anything. Which, uh...
0: Television shows need contracts up front w- When are you going to finish, and how are you going to finish it if we axe ca- you here, 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 or here? It uh, is this like we're going to make a television show because <laughs> the other way is just as See bad. It, it never gets cancelled, and you end up with Lost. It's like, oh come on,
1: Lost. Let me start it on Lost.
0: Right, let's finish this up because I have to eat.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was going to read a section from the book Deadly Equines (laughs) uh, by Kuchelaine O'Reilly. I knew I was right. The the shocking true story of meat eating and murderous horses. Yes. Uh, Let let me just read from the blurb on the back. There is widespread belief in a warm and comforting story which states the horse is a gentle herbivore. What if a Rosetta stone had been found to unlock the dark secrets of the horse's past? An international multi-million dollar industry serviced by horse whisperers, glossy magazines and popular culture preaches that horses are meek prey animals who fear predators. What What if evidence demonstrated horses have slain lions, tigers, pumas, wolves, hyenas and humans? Contemporary writers have successfully airbrushed murderous and meat-eating horses out of literature. What if Shakespeare, Sherlock Holmes and Steve McQueen provided artistic evidence to refute that claim, thanks to global equestrian amnesia? The crucial role played by horses in recent history has been lost. To mankind. What if testimony revealed meat eating horses had been used to explore the poles and photographs had been discovered of Tibet's blood eating horses?
0: Cool.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Deadly Equine. This is a book I
0: might get.
1: An actual book's great. Love it. Awesome. Okay, okay. great. Right. Bye. <laughs> Bye. 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 <laughs> Goodbye now.